All right. So Luke chapter 21 is where we were, will be, and we'll be starting in uh, verse 5 in, in, in just a moment. And we have a, we have a lot to do. We're going to take a, a big chunk out of the, uh, the text today. At least for me, I think it's a big chunk uh, uh, for me. So Jesus has been, uh, this is the Passion Week, right? So the week leading up to the cross. And, and so far in this week, Jesus has uh, triumphantly entered into, uh, into Jerusalem and went into the, the temple, cleansed the temple, and has been teaching and preaching the gospel, right? So Luke has given us a summary in chapter 20 of all the things that he has been doing, as well as the, the challenges that Jesus was faced from the various Jewish leaders that came before him. And he also has done some, some teaching on his part as well. So that's where we are uh, in, in, the, in, in the, the week. Um, now, the, the week is getting later and later, uh, and, and Jesus now begins to shift his teaching from dealing with the challenges of the Jewish leaders to exhorting and encouraging uh, his, his disciples, right? Uh, things, are, things are getting toward the end. It's time to uh, teach them all the things that need to be said uh, before it's too late. Um, and as we, we read the text this morning, here's what I want you to, to see in this, this passage, at least take notice of initially as we read the passage. I, I want you to see that in these exhortations and encouragements, uh, how merciful Jesus is to his disciples. How merciful he is to his disciples. How merciful he is to us in, in, in the way of him letting them know and telling them, hey, this is what's going to take place. These are the things that you can expect. And I, I want you to see the, the, the mercy of God in this. That there's God's mercy in telling them, this is what you can expect to come your way. And yet, in that expectation of things to come, how God is going to preserve them. How God is going to give them the endurance to persevere. We have a lot to talk about this morning, so let's get started. Look at chapter 21, and we're going to start reading in verse 5. Everybody with me? Verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone standing upon another, and that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be a sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nations will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, 
they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and and you will be brought before the kings and governors for my namesake. For this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will even put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Oh, but not not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country to enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill what is written, or all that is written. Alas! For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. For they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. No wonder we read this morning from Zechariah 14. Jesus is painting for us a very dark future for Israel, for the temple, for Jerusalem. These first two verses, however, set up for us, I think, understanding the rest of the passage. And if you bear with me for just a minute, I'll explain why. Now, in the historical context of, of where we are in, 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 in Luke, um, Luke doesn't tell us this, but, but Mark does, is, is that it's, this is called the, the, uh, the Olivet Discourse, Right? The Olivet Discourse, because at this point, Jesus and the boys are, are leaving the temple and they're heading up to the Mount of Olives. And they've been spending the night probably on the Mount of Olives, camping out every night and then going back into the temple to teach every day. And this is now Wednesday afternoon to Wednesday night. So think about that, Wednesday afternoon to Wednesday night. In this Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks the way he speaks because think about the timing here. Wednesday night, and the very next day, Jesus is going to be what? Arrested. They're going to have the Passover, and then he will be arrested. And on their way up to the the Mount of Olives, some of the disciples, again, Mark tells us that it was some of the disciples who asked the question or, or, or said, uh, the, the grandeur things of the, of the temple. Look at the stones and look at the precious jewels of the, of the temple. Because they were looking down upon Jerusalem, seeing the temple right before them. And we talked earlier about the temple a couple, a couple weeks ago, that this was, 
this was Herod's temple. And, and Herod's temple was a, a spectacular building for that time. Herod was rebuilding the temple in a, in a way that was supposed to be huge. It was going to be twice the size of, of Solomon's temple. In fact, it wouldn't even be completed until AD 63, which is quite ironic because it's destroyed in AD 70. It doesn't last long. So it's twice the size of, of Solomon's temple. But see where Jesus redirects his disciples as they, are, as they are just gazing upon something that's spectacular, like something big. You go to New York City, you're just kind of in all of the buildings, right? And, and this is them. They're just in, in all of the buildings. And, and Jesus redirects them and says, hey, re- remember, guys, what I said, that the temple is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. Not not one stone will still be laid on top of the other. It's going to be completely demolished. He has said this about three times now throughout Luke's gospel. Now that's a downer for the Jews because the temple was the center of everything. That's how you, you, you know how you are to Worship God and where you are to worship God and where you to experience the presence of God is at the temple. It was the center of all Jewish life and relationship. That's why they, they looked to it with such, with such esteem and such grandeur. And Jesus was telling him that that sucker is coming down. In AD 70, it does. In 40 years, it is. In 60 years, the, the, whole, the whole city would be destroyed. Remember that as Jesus was entering to Jerusalem, remember how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he wept over the temple because of its lostness and its rejection of Christ. How they were blind and completely missed him. Verses 20 through 24 tell us all about the destruction of Jerusalem and, 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 and the temple and how it's going to be. And it's, it's, he paints for us a very bad, bleak picture. And we read that in Zechariah. Zechariah was pretty explicit. It's not going to be good. But verse 22 tells us why. Verse 22 says, for Jesus tells us why, for these days are what? of vengeance. Whose vengeance? Roman vengeance? Or how about vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord? It's God bringing judgment upon Israel because of their rejection of the Messiah. And as Jesus says, to fulfill all that is written. So all the prophets before, as they prophesied, as as Ezekiel prophesied, as Zechariah prophesied, as Jesus himself prophesied and said, God's vengeance and just and righteous wrath was poured out on his people. Now, there's implications here about the destruction of the temple. There's implications for not only his disciples, but there's implications for us. Because why was there a temple in the first place? Well, again, it was, the, it was a uniquely different place to serve as a holy place where God's people would experience and worship God and, and ex, uh, express their devotion to God. It's where the sacrifices were made. It's where the, the yearly atonement was made for his people. It was a symbol of God's presence with his people. And so when Jesus is saying that the temple is going to be 
destroyed brick by brick, does that mean then that, that that's the end of all worship to God? Does that, what, 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 what's next? If the temple is destroyed, what do we as a people have? And of course, as we know, the answer to that question is, is of course not. The worship of God doesn't, doesn't end. In fact, this is what Jesus has, has been pointing them to every time he talks about the temple. He's pointing to, to them that the worship of God isn't going to end. In fact, something more special and greater is going to come in, in, uh, as the temple is going to be going away. <clears throat> Not a place made of stones or jewels, or bricks, not anything that's built by the, by the hands of man, but only a building that God himself would build, a people. He says, I'm destroying this because I'm making a people. I'm making a, a people for myself. And this will begin, this work will begin at the cross in just two days. To begin at the cross. The church is not buildings, but it's a people. It's a people. It'll begin at the cross. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, We come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is he saying? That we are a people that God has been building up as living stones, chosen by God in Christ. So Jesus is prophesying the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and simultaneously he is telling his followers and he is telling us that, that you are more precious and you are more grand and you are more marvelous and more beautiful than the temple will ever be. Stop marveling at the stones, Peter. Stop marveling at the stones, John, and all the rest. But you will be marveled by the work of the gospel in you. You will be my living stones as the Holy Spirit will come and indwell in his people. That's the solid rock of certainty that we have in this life if you are in Christ Jesus. That God himself is building us up. He is building us up in Christ. As individuals and as individuals a part of the body of Christ, the church. So all these things that come after us, that's the foundation by which all of these things just kind of get dashed on. Like, like the, the, the rocks by the ocean. The ocean hits it and it just dashes away. That as his people, we are being built up. That no matter what comes our way, persecution, famine, sore, suffering, loss, destruction. And if you are in Christ... The Holy Spirit has built us, us, built us into a building that will last, that cannot be destroyed by the Roman legions or anyone else who comes to destroy it. Because He has grafted us in, because He has made us 
his. And he is ours. Now, I start off there because that's where Jesus answering the question to his boys here because the rest of the passage doesn't really describe to Christians that, hey, your best life is coming. In fact, it's saying your, your best life will eventually come as it is in eternity, but in this life, not so much. That's the picture that's painted. And we need to hear this. As all things in the scriptures we need to hear. But it's specifically in order to understand trials and to understand suffering and persecutions that, that not just that we have faced, but, but things that we have heard throughout the centuries that brothers and sisters who have gone before us since the resurrection of Christ. We need to hear this to understand it. He tells his disciples these things and these events that are about to come to show them that his words are true. And that when these things come our way, when you are arrested, Peter, it's not, I'm not out of control. The sovereignty of God has not stopped. He's saying, my words are true. And if my words are true, then you can endure. Then you can survive. You will make it. Oh, they were gonna, they're going to cut your head off, Peter. But not a hair on your head will perish. So I think there's two main things that Jesus is pointing out for us in this text. Absolutely essential for us if we are to live the Christian life faithfully, and that is perseverance and assurance. Two great areas of struggle for Christians, for too many Christians, asking the questions, how do I have assurance that I will not be lost in the end? How am I to endure through such chaos that is in the world today. And questions like that, I mean, just fill in the blank with whatever question that has ever come into your mind when suffering comes or when you see someone else being persecuted or you hear about persecution of brothers and sisters around the world. We haven't had to ask ourselves too many of these particular questions, but many of our brothers have and our sisters have. And is Jesus worth giving up our lives for? Is he worth giving up our families for? Our future and financial security for? And that's why these two areas of perseverance and assurance are essential. And I think that's the point in all of this. That as Jesus is giving all of these trials and these persecutions and, and, and chaos, Jesus is just, he is exhorting and encouraging his followers, his disciples, that they can endure, that you can persevere. So let's first look at perseverance. Let's look at first perseverance. Let me first define it. Most of us have heard um, the phrase perseverance of the saints, and if you haven't, there you go. Perseverance of the saints. And this is a, a theological statement which, which means how God will uh, preserve and keep and hold his people 
through life and unto death and eternally. Right? So I'll give you the, uh, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith definition because it's way better than mine. It's a lot bigger too. So look, look at it with me. He says, it says, those whom God has accepted. Oh, I love that. In the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect unto can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. There you go. God is going to preserve his people and that they shall never fall away from the state of grace. Whom God has saved, whom God has redeemed, whom God has called, whom God has chosen, are saved and are saved eternally and cannot be lost. Right? But shall certainly preserve there into the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. From which, from which source he still begats and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and, and all the graces of the Spirit until immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, and yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding, through unbelief, in the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may be for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Listen to this. May be clouded and obscured from, from you. And yet, he is still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by what? By your work? By your strength holding on to the life preserver? By your ability to swim through the, the tumultuous waters of the chaos of our culture? No. What does it say? What did our brothers back in 1689 have to say? By what? The power of God unto salvation. Where they shall enjoy their purchased possession. And they being engraved upon the palm of his hands. And their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. I wish I could have said it that way. That's why I read it to you. Beautiful. So perseverance of the saints is God's work of effectually calling, or effectually justifying, saving, and sanctifying his people, his elect, until the very end. And into eternity. So no matter what comes our way, he will preserve his people all the way into eternity so that we will endure. Paul put it like this in um, Philippians 1.6. Now that I'm saying that, I'm, I can't remember what it was, but something, he who began a good work in you will see it to the end. There it is. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Bring it to completion. Unfortunately, some have taken this doctrine. They've deduced it into a statement of once saved, always saved. It's somewhat true, but not entirely true when, when saved has become, when saved means to people that anyone who has done a religious ritual and has no evidence of transformation or regeneration. This doctrine does not give comfort to the frozen chosen. 
And yet in this perseverance, it says, we will walk through many storms and the floods that arise and the facing unbelief and Satan's snares, these things that are beating against us. This is another side of perseverance. That in this life, we, we have to per- persevere through these things in Christ. And God intends for his people to persevere, to endure. And that's what Jesus is saying in, in our, our passage. That's why Jesus is giving them this new foundation of their perseverance. So that they will endure. So the disciples in their question in verse 7, they ask the kind of the same questions that all of us want to know. When and what signs? Right? When and what signs? And in those two questions, Jesus launches off into a host of things that are going to happen in the future. But again, I think that these these events that he's listing that, that do happen, by the way, and I wish we had enough time to, to go through all the history because these things happen very detailed, and, and church history explains it very deeply and, and, and shows us the evidence that Jesus' words were true. But the point is that they would endure through them, that they would persevere through them. And so he answers them in verse 8. He says, see that you are not led astray. So there's... There's the first exhortation. There's the first admonition. Do, are you, be not led astray. For many will come into my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and, and, and tumults, does anyone know what tumults are? Chaos in the streets. Riots. Tumults in the streets. Protests in the streets. It says, what does he say? Here's the second exhortation. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So be on guard. Don't be led astray. Don't be deceived, because there will be deception. Deception is coming. Do not be led astray. Do not be taken off course. Do not stumble by the, by the things that I am telling you will happen. Don't be deceived when there are false messiahs that come. Again, there were false messiahs that came saying, oh, we're, we're Jesus incarnate, we're come back, seeking to, to take his people off track. Jesus is warning us of them. But again, if you remember from Luke, Jesus has already told us that, hey, listen, it's going to be impossible for you to miss when I come back. If you have to ask the question, I wonder if that guy really is Jesus, then he's not, or she's not, whoever the world does now. If you have to ask the question, then it's not. So don't be deceived by false messiahs and false teaching that will come. He also tells us not to be deceived by the timing. Because verse 9 says, the end will not, not be at once. 
after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, there was this expectation among his people that there was this, there was going to be an, an immediate uh, return of Jesus. But Jesus is telling us that it's not going to come quickly. It's not going to become quickly. And don't be deceived by the false messiahs who are going to say so. Don't be deceived by them. But we can sympathize in some sense that if all of these things and tribulations and trials and things that are happening at Jesus' listing that does take place in Israel, in Jerusalem, between A.D. 70 and A.D. 130, we can understand how followers of Christ would be anxious for his return and frightened that they would be tempted to give in to the fear that would come upon them. We can at least sympathize with them that that's, that could happen. But as Jesus is saying, be on guard. Don't be as deceived. Don't be too quick to believe them. Notice also what he says. He says, and when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will be at once. Do not be terrified, because these things must happen first. What are the most fearful things in life? For some of us, it may be spiders, mice, rats, monsters, I don't know. The most terrifying things in the world are the things that are unexpected, the things that are unknown, right? I mean, all those things are unexpected, but I mean, if, if we saw the spider coming, he's not so bad, because I'd just step on the sucker. But as my neighbor was telling me, reaching into the, his mailbox, and all of a sudden the black widow falls on his hand. Yeah, exactly, what Abby's doing. <laughs> Freak out, do, 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 Freak out, right? Yes. The scariest things in life are the things that are most unexpected. And as Christians, we should know and should expect that in a fallen world, that there are going to be wars, that there are going to be riots and corruptions and chaos all around us. Things that Jesus is telling us to expect. So if we are expecting for the Middle East to constantly be on fire and for those troubles to sometimes come to our soil, then what do we have to fear if Jesus is telling us to expect in a fallen world for these things to take place? The old G.I. Joe saying, knowing is half the battle. Knowing helps us endure. Knowing helps us to remain, it's an 80s thing, sorry, 90s too. Knowing helps us to endure, knowing helps us to be steadfast, and knowing helps us to remain strong. Because if I know if the spider's going to jump on my hand, I'm coming in with an iron fist. Or my Glock, one of the two. <laughs> I hate those things. There will be trials, there will be tribulations, and war and persecution. Again, he is not telling us that, that God is not in control. He's saying, my word is true. 
and you can trust my word, and you can believe my word, and you can, you can bank on these things because I am true. Christianity is not just a party. It's, it's a call to come and die to self and fight to endurance and, and persevere every day. It's a, it's a wartime living every day. It's a wartime living every day. When, when my dad was drafted into the military, went to Vietnam, my grandmother had a wartime living expectation. Living in fear and praying. Whatever this Lutheran woman had at the time praying for my dad to come home because she had a wartime life sometimes things are just a little cushy for us when we don't feel that and then it's easy to then give in to fear because we haven't been living in the war we haven't been on our knees enough we haven't been praying enough And Jesus is telling us these things so that we would endure. His words call us to be on guard, to not be led astray, to not be deceived, to, to not live in fear of the future. And that it's going to be hard, that it's going to be difficult. And many of our brothers and sisters might be lost to it, might be killed because of it. But don't fear, because God is sovereign. And he means for us in this, for our endurance, for our perseverance. Things get worse, though, don't they? Look at verse 10 as we walk through the text. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Here's the wars. Great earthquakes, natural disasters, uh, various famines, pestilation, uh, pestilence. Let's talk about uh, 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 fires and stuff. So, I mean, this is what takes place. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will what? Lay your hand, hands on you and persecute you. Persecute you. And you can see all the different ways that it will take place. Throughout history, since the resurrection, Christians have been facing persecution and death, the storms and floods. Disciples, the disciples here would soon face it themselves. They'll soon face it themselves. Peter, will, Peter and John will be uh, arrested and they will be beaten. Stephen will be stoned to death. James will be beheaded. And the rest of them after. And this is nothing new. Throughout the centuries, Christians have been persecuted and have always been the reality for his disciples. Why? Because you will be hated by all for my name's sake. For a long time, we have thought in our, that in our culture, that our culture was, was Christianized enough that we didn't think that we had to make a choice between Christ and culture. But as our world becomes more and more antagonistic to the claims of Christianity and the gospel, we may not be given the death penalty, but we will be marginalized. And you will be labeled, you will be canceled, 
your position, your place will be removed. Suggestions are now being made by politicians that if churches do not comply with the new cultural sexual revolution of anything goes, then tax exemption status of those churches should be denied. No longer advocated by the fringes, but now by mainstream politicians. More and more of those who hold to a biblical standard of gender, marriage, and sexuality, they will be labeled as enemies of freedom. You hear me right. You will be labeled as enemies of equality, injustice, and fairness. What's the real reason again? Verse 17, you will be hated by all. Why? For my name's sake. We do not know how persecution will come and in what ways, but certainly for the disciples then and for his disciples now, persecution will come. And again, the mercy of Jesus letting us know, right? So we can't look back and say, you could have gave us a clue. No, he's given us more than that so that we would hold fast to him and that we would hold fast to his word, and that we would hold fast to his promises knowing that he holds us fast. And in preparation for the persecutions, the crazy thing in this passage, verse 13, is Jesus says there will be opportunities. Love that, opportunities. So here you are, you're being turned in by your parents, you're being turned in by your, by your, your brothers and your, your sisters, but Jesus says, there's an opportunity here. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you the mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. What an optimistic Savior. What an optimistic Savior that in the midst of persecution that he is giving us providentially, sovereignly opportunities to share the gospel. That in our suffering, that in our loss, in our loss, in our loss, in our pain, he's saying, there's an opportunity here. Share the gospel. Proclaim how much this life is meaningless unless you have Christ. That my hope is not here and in what you do to me today, but my hope is when I come into eternity because all those promises will be fulfilled. There's an opportunity here. Persecution and suffering in all ways in all ways, produces opportunities. What a great example is going to take place to the disciples in just two days. Because on the cross, when Jesus is questioned, what does Jesus do? Oh, this is an opportunity. Jesus takes the opportunity 
So there are two things, though, that in this suffering, I think we should be settled in. And I think in particular for our, our younger people, I say that as if I'm old, because you will feel more pressure in these areas. And two areas we need to be settled in is first in the truth of Christianity. If you believe in the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, and through his life, death, and resurrection, that he has achieved our salvation, your salvation, and only through him can anyone be saved, then know this. Your place and your position in this culture will be increasingly not tolerated by the tolerable, self-proclaimed tolerable. Because you will be labeled, again, as unloving, bigoted, misogynistic, Google that one later, arrogant, and whatever else they can make up. If you believe that God's word is infallible and without error, that it is your sole authority to knowing God, and if you believe that Jesus is the only way and that he is the only Savior, then you're dangerous. You're intolerant. Beloved church, these are the areas in which we must be prepared to remain steadfast in the truth of God's word. So the truth of Christianity, the second one, is we need to be settled in the area of the morality of the scriptures. The morality. Right? If you believe, again, the Bible and what it says and how we are to live, what marriage is, what gender is, what creation is, what holiness is, and that God has set the standard of holiness and that these things that he has put in his, in his word are good and for human flourishing, then again, be ready to hear the accusations. The intolerant, the bigoted, discriminating, homophobic, and outdated. And these will be the issues. But again, Jesus says what? There's an opportunity. You're marginalized? Guess how much I was marginalized. You had pain? Look how much I had pain. You suffered? Look at my suffering. You died? I died. But there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity to testify of his glories and good news and the gospel. And when we do the promise is that he tells us is that the Spirit of God that empowered Christ in these times is empowering us and gives us the words to say and the wisdom to withstand and be able to speak with such certainty. We don't have to be the smartest and the most educated, the most articulate or the most clever. We must be only faithful. Only faithful. And why? Because God intends that we would persevere in and through persecution and suffering. And it intends as well for our sanctification, for us to look more like Jesus who suffered, who experienced loss and pain and death. It's how he intends to grow his church. 
It's how he intends to grow his church. So in these exhortations, admonitions, to be on guard, to do not be deceived, do not be led astray, to be prepared, to be faithful, to do not fear, he's showing us how we persevere. But also he gives us assurance. The assurance, again, the, the assurance that we see in the, the perseverance of the, of the saints. <clears throat> assurance that, that those who are in Christ, that they will persevere to the end. The assurance that we will persevere. Again, let me give you the definition of assurance from the 1689. It says, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him sincerely, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in what? The state of grace. And may rejoice in the hope of the what? The glory of God, which hope shall never be, which shall never make them what? Ashamed. That's how we have assurance. We can have assurance now that no matter the circumstances of our suffering or our persecution, because of what? The work of grace, regeneration, and transformation. Again, not a work of our own, but the work of God. And then if in Christ, then what? We can have assurance. That's our assurance. The assurance of salvation. And if in that, then in that assurance, we have the assurance of what? The perseverance of the saint. The perseverance of the saint. Right after Jesus says, they're going to hate you because of my namesake. Look what he says. Verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, your perseverance, you will gain your lives. Now, now verse 18 is not telling us, again, that Christians aren't going to suffer in great loss. I mean, that's the point of the passage. You, you are going to suffer persecution. But it's what Paul said, to live as Christ, but to die as gain. How else would Paul say that if the words of Jesus here in verse 18 are not true? And what Jesus is saying here is this. Man can never take from you, the one who hates you, man can never take from you what God has given. It can never take from you. And that is the promise to all of those who are in union with him. Those who are in Christ, his elect, that can never be taken from his hand. This is the perseverance of the saints. And then through all of our suffering, we can have assurance in this, that it is true. I, I have to do it. Turn to Romans 8. Like you're twisting my arm reading Romans 8, right? 
Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8. Read this with me. You, you need to see this this morning in light of what Jesus is telling us. And I know you might have heard these words before, but see these words. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain freedom, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of child, childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, what? We are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit, words of Jesus here, right? The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28. And we know. We know. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He Foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. What is that? That's perseverance. That's perseverance that God is working all things out for the glory of his name and for our joy. He is working in us. In all of it, in all of it, that verse 18 is telling us God is not intended for our ultimate destruction. They can kill the flesh, but I got you eternally. His promises are true. Verse 31. What then? shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, in, who is indeed interceding for us. 
And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're all being killed all the day long. And we regard it as sheep to be slaughtered. No, listen to this. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to, what? Separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right there, brothers and sisters, is our assurance. Right there is our perseverance. What can separate us. Jesus was completely confident in God's sovereignty. He was completely confident in his Father. Even in the shadow of the cross. Completely confident that even in his suffering, in his death, he is telling us what will come to pass, that there will be suffering, that there will be persecution, that there will be death for his followers, but it is for their perseverance and sanctification. That although there may be future suffering, there will be future triumph as well. Future triumph in the glory of Christ. Let me ask you, is your God this big? When you go through persecution, when you go through suffering, and you go through loss, it is easily, we are easily deceived to believe the lies that he is not this big. That if I don't worry, and if I don't give in to these things, then there is something wrong with me. Can God really do what he has said here? When you walk through trials and suffering and persecution and all the chaos around us, are you fearful? What Jesus is telling us here is that his words are true. And they are true because he accomplished on the cross is the evidence of the truthfulness of his words. His resurrection sealed the deal that his words are true. Do you have then the faith to believe? I, I pray that we will. That we will endure and that we would Remain steadfast on the, the rock of our salvation, Christ Jesus, who is then building in us a people, the people of God. That we would have assurance of Christ, assurance of his work, not in our own. Assurance in God's work. You know, I don't, I don't say these things often, but 
none of this makes sense unless you are a child of the living God. None of this makes sense unless you have been forgiven and you've come through Christ. That only comes through Christ, excuse me. None of this makes sense if you haven't embraced the gospel and trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord. In fact, a lot of this probably just sounds crazy. And if you have not, I pray that you would trust the Lord this morning. Trust in the work of Christ as your salvation. That He is the Son of God. And that only through Him can there be the forgiveness of sins. And that He is the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for these great truths. What promises we have read this morning. I hope and pray, O Lord, that this is a realigning of our perspective and lenses on this world and this life. They are realigned on Christ. We endure because he has endured. We persevere because he persevered. Let us rely on him and him alone. And that no matter what comes our way, O Lord, we would believe the promises that not one hair of our head will perish. Because what you have given us lasts and that no one can take away. Lord, we pray for our time of response this morning. And it's encouraging to one another and edifying to one another. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.